Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Giorgio Vasari has been variously called the father of art history, the inventor of artistic biography, and the author of, quote, the Bible of the Italian Renaissance, a little book called The Lives of the Artists. It's required reading for art history students, and quite fun, depending on whose embellished tall tale of a bio you're reading. Neither a total liar nor an absolute devotee of the truth, Vasari was always endlessly interesting in his opinions and takedowns of the artists of his day. So Vasari is pretty intimidating to tackle for a work of biography, especially since the man was a master of the form himself. But in their book, The Collector of Lives, Ingrid Rowland and Noah Charney teamed up to tell the story of the man behind the men of the Renaissance. Ingrid Rowland joins us from Indiana to talk about Vasari's colorful world, Florentine egos, and even a few naughty monkeys. Thanks for chatting with me, Ingrid. Oh, thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about what's so special about the lives of artists? I mean, there were biographies written well before this was published, uh, even as early as 44 BC. So why is this book so special? Why does it get so much attention? Most biographies before, and especially in Vasari's time, were either heads of state or saints. And so they were people who normally came from the elite classes. If they didn't come from the elite classes, as some saints did not, still there was this idea of people being singled out for divine attention. And so the interesting thing of what Vasari's doing is making a plea on one hand for the importance of artists in society and describing them as people worthy of biography, as worthy as heads of state. And at the same time, they're also gifted with a divine inspiration, which puts them rather in the category of saints. Most artists in his day were somewhat literate. They came from the working class. And so the idea of writing about working class people was really revolutionary. So in Vasari's time, were artists just used and abused by the upper classes like the rest of the working class? Or did they have any extra power in society? 
they had a good deal of power because what they do is represent saints for the faithful or Christ and the Virgin Mary and God. Or they're doing portraits and they're projecting the images of important people, the people who pay them as patrons. And therefore, they need to have a certain rapport with the people that have commissioned the works of art. There are also hierarchies within art itself. So painters are thought to be higher class than sculptors because sculptors get marble dust all over them and they're whacking away, they get sweaty, whereas a painter, if he's careful about his technique, and it is almost always a he, then you can carry off an act of painting without getting yourself too dirty. And that means that you can make certain social pretensions for yourself. It goes all the way back to the ancient world when famously the painter that the Emperor Nero hired to paint his golden house painted in his toga. It was like painting in a business suit. Michelangelo as a sculptor is in a different category. and He's always sweaty. He's always hewing marble or other kinds of stone. He's got dust in his outfit. And famously, Michelangelo had these dogskin boots that he probably got when he was working on the Sistine Chapel, and he just never took them off. He'd go to bed with his dogskin boots on, and when he finally, as Vasari says, tries to take the dogskin boots off, pieces of his own skin come with the dogskin. Wow. I had not heard that story before. Um, how quickly after the Lives of Artists was published did society's perceptions or appreciations of these artists change? Was it a rapid thing? Was it like as soon as this book was out, everybody was lining up to get Vasari or Michelangelo's signature? Or was it more of a gradual change? It's pretty rapid. And it's already happening in Florence, where Vasari's living, and at the same time in Rome. So you've got a competition as artistic capital between Florence and Rome. And what Cosimo I, the first Duke of Tuscany, and then he becomes the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and he has a whole stable of artists who are putting forth a kind of Florentine style, deliberately unrealistic. It's what's sometimes called mannerism, and so you stretch people out so that their arms and legs are longer than they really are. And people's necks are incredibly long, and they have what looks like spray-on clothing in wild colors. And all of this is a way of suggesting that Florentines are more sophisticated than anybody else on the planet. And because the artists are putting forward this claim for Florence itself, the artists also partake of this special quality. And Michelangelo is touted by Vasari as being the absolute epitome of an artist because he can do painting and sculpture, drawing, and he can be an architect. He can do all of these things at the same time. And therefore, this is what everybody should aspire to. And as he says, Michelangelo comes down to humanity, much as Christ came down to save humanity in a different way. It's really incredibly bold statements. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, reading Vasari, and especially his section on Michelangelo, I mean, it reads like hagiography, like like a novel of his idol. Are they all like that? Is it straight biography every time or the opposite? Or do Vasari's takes differ from artist to artist? A lot depends on when the artist lived. He's interesting because he's doing a lot of scholarly research, and that also is pretty novel for his time. And Vasari also collected drawings. Then with his contemporaries, he's got really a solid body of evidence. For earlier people, the sources are more sparse, particularly because mostly what we have for artists in earlier times are contracts and if we're lucky, preliminary drawings. Vasari collected preliminary drawings, which was almost unique in his time. But he's also twisting the biographies to his own ends. Most of the characters who appear in the lives are there to demonstrate moral lessons. And so there again, it's like saints' lives. People's lives take a certain shape and if they didn't really take that shape, then Vasari's willing to nudge the data into making the life take a certain turn. So he tells us that Raphael was much given to sex and ends up at one point not wanting to work on his commission for the great banker Agostino Chigi because he'd rather go mess around with the baker's daughter down the street. And Agostino finally kidnaps the baker's daughter locks her in his house, and Raphael therefore can paint and then go have some fun with his girlfriend and then go back and paint. And this is probably completely untrue, but it's really amusing. And so it makes everybody want to read The Sexy Life of Raphael. Yeah, I, there are a lot of tall tales in the lives of the artists. Do you have a, a favorite one that is just too good to be true, or is it really hard to choose? Yeah, there's so many of them, but I love the one. There's a character named Bufalmaco who also shows up in Boccaccio's Decameron as being a wild trickster. And at one point, he doesn't want to be awakened by his patron. And so what he does is put candles on the back of cockroaches and drive the cockroaches under the door of the patron's bedroom and scares him to death. And that way, Bufalmaco doesn't have to get up and work at an untimely hour. <laughs> and so the Bufalmaco ones, I think, are a lot of fun. My co-author, Noah Charney, is the one who has the immortal line in the book that says, and now a word about naughty monkeys. And so he talks about how this naughty monkey gets into the artist's paints. <laughs> it's the patron's monkey, and the next day the monkey makes an absolute hash of the commission. The patron comes in, and the artist says, well, I have one idea about how this should look, and your monkey obviously has another one. And that's just typical Vasari humor. It's a riot. What's really funny to me is that Vasari definitely is not a non-judgmental biographer. He's totally casting aspersions on some artists and then saying that others are gonna yes. <laughs> are gonna live forever. Um, was he right? Do we like the same artists today that he liked then, or was he just way off? That he's forced us to like those artists. But Vasari's point always 
as a good courtier to the Grand Duke of Tuscany is to show that the artists of Tuscany are the best who have ever lived and they will always be the best who ever lived because Vasari has founded an academy of design that will allow artists to keep this tradition going on. And that means that great, say, Roman painters like Pietro Cavallini in the 14th century are overlooked because Giotto, who's from Arezzo, Vasari's hometown, by definition, must be a greater painter because he's from Vasari's hometown. And the same way there are painters like somebody named Antoniazzo Romano, who's almost unknown today, who's really a fabulous painter, but nobody's paid much attention to him because Vasari didn't, because that Romano tells you everything you need to know. He was Tony from Rome instead of Tony from Florence. If he'd been Tony from Florence, then he'd be a towering genius. So does Vasari do what we would consider contemporary art history, like drawing lines between schools or regions of artists? Obviously, he says stuff like Florentine artists are way better, forget those guys from Rome, but does he draw links between individual artists and trace influences and and look at who taught whom how to paint? Yes, the most... Obvious example is where he talks about how Venetian artists don't learn how to draw. And the most evident example of that is Titian. He said if Titian knew how to draw, he'd be the best painter who ever lived. But unfortunately, poor guy, he was a Venetian. And that means that he learned to paint before he drew and drew and drew and drew and drew. And it's true. The Tuscan tradition of instructing young apprentices starts them out with drawing. And it's only after you've been drawing for several years and mixing paints for the journeyman and the master that you actually start touching paint yourself. Whereas in Venice, you go right to painting. And if you look at early Titian in particular, you can see anatomy is not really his strong suit. And he can do things with the texture of paint that nobody else can do. And so Vasari has a point. It's just that even Vasari has to admit Titian paints so beautifully that you don't care about those anatomical shortcomings. And he was such a great party-goer that Vasari, who was also a great party-goer, just appreciated him. And so he says all these things about Titian, and then he somewhat contradicts himself because he likes the man so much, and he really does love the painting, too. So if the lives is one of the major sources we have for a lot of what we know about many of these artists, what other resources do you have for finding out more about Vasari himself? What was the research process like since there's no life of the artist behind the lives of the artists, really? It was really fun. So one of the things that I did that I enjoyed immensely was just going to Arezzo, his hometown, and that was where he always had his home base, and poking around all the places that he used to poke around. And For me, because I also was trained in classical archaeology, one of the interesting things is to see how his name means potter. And he comes from a family of potters and just seeing how the ceramics of Etruscan and Roman times in Arezzo would have influenced 
his own practice and the practice of his family. And you could see it right there because Arezzo was one of the great centers of ceramic production in the Roman Empire in a tradition that goes right back to the Etruscans. And then you can walk around and see the Romanesque churches that he saw when he was a little boy. You can eat the food that he loved. And that kind of on-the-ground research is a lot of fun. One of the other ways that we can get at the artists is to look at their documents and frequently because Italy has been a bureaucratic country, again, since antiquity, there are amazing amounts of bureaucratic documents that are preserved all over the country in archives. And so you can find 16th century contracts for all kinds of different projects. So you can use primary sources, payment slips, the bureaucratic business of creating art, and then you can go look at the art yourself and see whether you think that Vasari's judgments about it are good or bad or prejudiced or non-prejudiced. So what's the final verdict on Vasari himself? Was his life as interesting or as scandalous as some of the stories he told in his book? Now, his life is pretty wild and the thing that really comes out of it that, again, is intimidating for somebody who wants to write a biography of him is his work ethic. He's not the most popular painter today. Part of that is that he's in this mannerist tradition, and so he's using wild colors and these elongated figures. Some of it is, as he admits himself repeatedly, he used assistance more than a lot of people did. And that's one of the reasons he could meet deadlines. Some of the people disparaging him in his own time were just jealous because he'd get commissions. And the reason he got commissions is because he'd finished them. He wasn't like Leonardo who'd start everything and finish almost nothing. He really got the job done and he'd get the job done on time, which meant that he got a lot of work. And for a time after Michelangelo's death, he was really the most famous painter in all of Italy, even though today we don't think of him as a great painter. He was a superb architect, and so that's also something to take into account when we're thinking about him. When he's writing the lives and doing all of these paintings, or he's just painting yards and yards and yards of public space in Florence, he also designed the Uffizi building where the famous gallery is, and that really is an extraordinary project in every possible way. So the, what you have is the picture of somebody who's working really at the top of his game in literature and in art. He's doing a lot of what his great idol Michelangelo was doing. He had to weather hostility because he's a guy from Arezzo who ends up working in Florence and everybody from Florence thinks, oh, Arezzo is just a hick town in the provinces. He was short. He had some kind of itchy skin disease. He says that he wasn't any too attractive. And so what you see is somebody who's battling against personal setbacks and then he's living in an extremely unstable time politically. So one of his favorite patrons was Duke Alessandro de' Medici. But he's not really a great 
ruler of Florence. And so he's spectacularly assassinated, which sends Vasari into great turmoil. He's got a life that turns out to be well worth telling simply because it is as dramatic as all the swashbuckling incidents that he tells about with other people. For more strange stories from Renaissance Italy, do check out Ingrid Rowland and Noah Charney's The Collector of Lives, Giorgio Vasari and the Invention of Art. And check out the episode page for a slideshow of images from the show. That's it for Smarty Pants. Next week, we are going to talk about viruses and zombies and bioengineered plagues. So if you haven't gotten a flu shot yet, you might want to fit one in before that episode. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.